I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am your secret voter casting extra ballots for the week. I'm Matt Bernico. I'm working Rudy Giuliani's voter fraud hotline. <laughs> I'm fielding all of the calls coming in from around the country about uh, Dean's uh, nefarious extra votes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's going to be a big, huge um, announcement at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping later about my specific extra ballots. So don't miss it. Um, we are again talking about the 2020 election. Uh, it's still a big deal. I don't know if you've heard. Um, last week, we talked to Tad DeLay about Trumpism and what's going on with the right and that kind of phenomenon from a psychoanalytic lens. Um, this time, though, it would be helpful, I think, to take stock of what's going on with uh, liberalism and the left and Christianity. So occasionally on the show, we do a sort of roundup of what's going on in the Christian left or liberal world. And we're doing that again with respect to the 2020 election. But this time looking at how this election is kind of reconfiguring things in American politics, which is happening in Christianity, too. So one thing that Matt and I have been reflecting on is how there's a lot of differences between what it meant to be a really progressive Christian in like the, the end of the Bush years or the beginning of the Obama years and what's going on now in 2020. So uh, we're going to do a little bit of a, a rear view mirror to figuring out the, the lost world of Bush Obama <laughs> progressive evangelicalism, maybe. Um, we'll do some oversharing, I guess, on what it was like to be a Christian anarchist, and then uh, think through um, what all this means for the left today. Uh, what am I missing, Matt? Is that really what we're doing in the show? Am I leaving anything out? <laughs> No, that's it. I mean, if you follow Dean or I on Twitter, you know that we've been like uh, strangely fixating on this like weird part of history for whatever reason. Uh, last night on Twitter, I joked to Dean that um, <laughs> that uh, it's a lot like we were people who were like, uh, you know, we had we had some kind of terrible disease. And now we're looking back on it like we think it's really cool for some reason. <laughs> um, the this weird moment of like progressive christianity and like leftist christianity in the early 2000s i guess since like we were kind of formed in that crucible we just i guess have a lot of nostalgia for it but also it's like a legitimately interesting thing that i think we can draw some political analysis out of so uh, i think it'll be a, a good conversation to have yeah so to get into it i think what we'll do first is maybe talk a little bit about that lost world um 
that old timey Christian anarchism, <laughs> if you will. Um, it feels like it's getting further and further away, but also like it, it hasn't left me in an important way. So we can talk through that uh, and maybe just think through what it was like to be a, a progressive Christian in a very different time. And then also uh, later on, we'll track where some of those voices are today. Many of them who have uh, like encouraged people to vote for Joe Biden, which is really uh, a wild thing to hear a lot of these folks say. And lastly, we'll turn back around to thinking about what good Christian Marxists can say about Joe Biden's election. So, Matt, why don't we start off just painting a picture, uh, drawing, draw us into the scene of what it was like to be a progressive Christian anarchist in the year 2007 when Barack Obama is running around about to be elected. It's a really hard thing to describe without sounding <laughs> like you are a crazy person. <laughs> so if you did not grow up in evangelicalism and you don't have any experience in that sort of milieu, um, count yourself among the, the lucky, but uh, <laughs> try to keep up with what I'm going to say here. <laughs> so evangelicalism has this, I mean, overarching system of theology, I think, that puts like your relationship with Jesus Christ and also God because of the same person um, as like the most important thing in your entire life. That is the most important thing, right? Everything that you do should revolve around your, your religious relationship with Jesus and nothing else. So like that means um, that you should only listen to music that is Christian, because if you listen to secular music, well, then you're not putting Jesus first, right? And if you're going to do politics, then you also have to do it in a Christian way. Because if you just do regular politics, then you're not putting Jesus first. And like evangelicals, I mean, right wing evangelicals do a whole lot with this idea, right? I mean, that even if even if you didn't grow up in an evangelical home or you never like went to an evangelical church, you know about the right wing Christians already and how they kind of like have taken this weird rule and run with it in a direction. But what I'm about to tell you is fun. I guess, kind of, <laughs> in a certain way of thinking. <laughs> if you were an uh, anthropologist, it would be awesome. Yeah, that's right. Well, so there's also this whole group of, like, uh, progressive and left-wing sort of countercultural Christians that were uh, very in vogue in the early 2000s and the 2010s um, that took this, like, overbearing importance of Jesus first and in this different, interesting direction. Um, so we've talked about Christian anarchism on on this podcast a lot before, um, but in case you don't know, it's definitely like a it's a philosophy of anarchism that rests on, uh, you know, Christ before all these other ki kinds of things, you know, uh, no, um, no kings, no bedtimes, only Jesus. That's your one big authority in life. And mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting, I think, and really appealing to someone uh, like Dean and me. <laughs> when we were like 18 because you know you've been brought up in this entire sort of cultural milieu and theological way of knowing the world where jesus is always first so like what if there's a way to even be more radical than your parents you know and <laughs> yeah. this is it this is how That's you right. do it is you become an anarchist that only listens to god um and uh dean and i were into this and i think a lot of other christians were too so we're not the only weirdos out there um but there was this like definitely a, a very interesting but bizarre Christian counterculture industry around these ideas. Um, they emerge in all kinds of different spots. I, I guess I'll just name a few. And then Dean, you can kind of jump in with a few others. Yeah. But I think I encountered these ideas most concretely when I went to the Cornerstone Festival, which is another thing we've talked about in this podcast quite a bit, but we'll do it again right now. 
The Cornerstone Festival was a big Christian music festival that was held in Bushnell, Illinois, which is just the middle of nowhere. Um, but the idea was that you'd go camp for a week and see all these cool Christian bands. And it was always like alternative music in the sense that there was like ska bands and there were like metal bands and like indie bands and tons of like hardcore, especially in the early 2000s. It was nothing but hardcore bands, um, <laughs> mostly. Uh, but there was also like um, all of these like um, seminars that you'd go to about religion and politics and all kinds of other things, too. Um, but the one band that always sticks out at Cornerstone, and if if anyone has ever been to Cornerstone, they know they'll know exactly what you're talking about. There's a band called the Salters. So the Salters, um, you know, are are kind of this like weird group of anarcho primitivists who are also Christians and kind of like reading Christian evangelicalism through the lens of yeah anarchism and primitivism um, in some really wild ways. But um, they made this music that was, I mean, it's pretty incredible. I was listening to it just uh, just today, actually. And it, well, I don't know. My response to it is like feeling a little bit embarrassed, but like it is legitimately cool. And I think the embarrassment I feel is mostly just because I was like an embarrassing <laughs> person when I used to listen to this. But anyways, uh, the Salters, yeah, they espouse this type of Christian anarchism that I think is um, really powerful and plays on the evangelical tropes I was just laying out. But it takes it in this like really interesting radical position, this radical direction. Um, so that's at least some of what, uh, being a progressive Christian or a Christian anarchist might have looked like in the early 2000s. Dean, what else is there to say about this weird subsect of Christianity? Yeah, that's great. It's a great snapshot. I'm impressed by how much you were able to weave in uh, all in just that that brief amount of time. Um, maybe it's worth uh, parsing out a little more the sort of worldview that this kind of thing engenders, right? So, okay, it's the the Bush-Obama, you know, the end of the Bush years, the beginning of the Obama years, um, at that time, there was kind of a, a wave of Christians experimenting with this identity that Matt was talking about in really material ways. So, you know, the the premise being that being a Christian comes first and it should even it should make you fall out of step with what's happening around you. And there is a real radical pulse to that in, in a relative sense. Right. Like um, if you grew up a right wing evangelical your whole life and your religion was not too far off from being totally identified with U.S. nationalism, for example, or militarism, and someone came along and told you that Jesus actually said that you should be a pacifist and like completely reject violence and hate the U.S. flag or whatever, you know, that would be a, a pretty big deal. So there is something of relative uh, radicalism here, but it's a really particular kind. So the way that it works is um, because Christianity is the kind of thing that calls you to live differently. Um, that also means that at its most sort of embodied, you should be living differently too. So in the, the mid and late 2000s, there were all kinds of uh, intentional communities, for example, that sprouted up um, people living together in more or less organized ways, um, trying to figure out how to sort of live according to a, a Christian way of life. Um, there was like a lot of people sort of doing like dumpster diving and that kind of early, uh, like early 2000s anarchist praxis was going on in Christian circles too. Um, there was this whole movement called new monasticism, um, which the premise was that they wanted to, these Christians wanted to reconsider what it would be like to sort of drop out of this society in an intentional way, in a Christian way. Um, and not dropping out and so far as they're not engaged, uh, it was kind of um, they wanted to to live a, a separate and patterned life so that they could engage in especially urban areas. So 
there's like a lot of wild stuff. And just to maybe um, bring it back to the personal piece, like I remember being at Cornerstone Festival and buying a copy of the 12 Marks of New Monasticism, a book about that movement uh, in like a plastic bag from a really dusty bookseller. So that's like the kind of thing that was going on at that time. Um, there's also like a whole bunch of sort of emergent Christian publishing voices like Rob Bell or Brian McLaren or Phyllis Tickle, these people that were just putting out book after book and making conservatives really upset. So there's a lot of like theological experimentation and then a lot of uh, social or political um, experiments based off of that. And when it came to something like the Obama election, the big question was, what are you supposed to do? How should a Christian be political? Um, all these Christians were saying that there is something profoundly political about Jesus and about being a Christian. But there was also this kind of nuanced opinion about whether or not that means you should participate at all. So to give you an example of my own situation, Matt, maybe you can tell your own story, too. Um, on the So I didn't vote in 2008. Uh, if I had to vote, I probably would have voted for Barack Obama. But I didn't vote because I was a Christian first. That was a big thing. And uh, I at that time still would have thought I would have thought at that time that capitalism was bad and I would have said that I was an anarchist even. But really, it came down to I'm a Christian, so I can't participate in this. So what I did instead was I fasted all day with a friend of mine for the results of the election. And that was like my big Christian political praxis. Uh, <laughs> what did what did you do with respect to the Obama election, Matt? Yeah, I didn't vote either. It was the first election I could vote in, but didn't. I think I did feel a bit bummed about it, but I was really convicted that like um, if you participate in voting, that means that you are like OK with the like state sanctioned violence that comes with it. And I was just going to say no to that. So I guess I did. Um, I I remember like reaching out um, to um, a Food Not Bombs chapter in a nearby city because I lived in a I was in a small college town. And I was just like, I remember messaging them like on MySpace or whatever. And I was like, mm -hmm. hey, are you guys doing anything for the election? Like on the election day that I can like participate in that is not the election? Mm -hmm. Like I want to do something political that's not voting because fuck voting. And they never got back to me. They just never wrote me back. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, I mean, good for them. It was probably for the best that they didn't. But um, <laughs> that's that's what my first voting experience or lack of one was like. And uh, it characterizes exactly the way this this sort of milieu helps you think or or lets you think at least, you know, <laughs> reject reject um, the authority of the state and instead try to figure out something to do that's like Jesus oriented instead. Yeah, that's right. Um, and to to sort of maybe put a fine point on how weird all of this is, like Matt mentioned the Salters, I think they're a great sort of band to bring up because uh, they like a Salter song is how I learned who Donald Rumsfeld was, for example, who I like did not care about in high school. Why would you as a high school student? Um, but I knew who he was because the Salters were criticizing him in a song. Um, and that's like a bizarre thing, right? They were sort of plugged into that side of U.S. politics. Uh, they also like I learned about anarcho-primitivism and certain authors like John Zerzan or like, uh, dang, who was that guy who had that book called Endgame? Derek something. Oh, boy, uh, I can tell you. Shoot, I cannot remember his name. Somebody is going to send me a tweet saying it. And thank you for doing <laughs> that later. But anyway, there was like a whole host of sort of anarcho-primitivist authors that were really popular at that time. And all these Christians I knew were like citing them in liner notes or 
um, selling their literature along with like their burned CDs and like bad T-shirts. So uh, there was a real sort of pipeline from not just Bible believing Christianity to, you know, being more Christian or something, but also into actual leftist or anarchist literature. So there's just like a lot of weird stuff swirling around here. And if you're a Christian specifically, you're like, (laughs) I guess you interpret all that as I'm living in some version of the apocalyptic end times and I have to find a way to to be faithful. You know, it's like the weirdest version of left behind. Yeah. Also, to their credit, um, I mean, the Salters are probably how I learned a lot about the Iraq war as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, not just through their lyrics, but even in their like blogs and their zines and on social media, like they like went to Iraq, if I remember correctly, yeah, and like with, lived uh, with the Kurds and like they did this whole thing there trying to draw attention to that. And that was very interesting, too. So it's not like they're just like um, LARPing this weird anarcho lifestyle, but they like were doing some interesting work, too, that I think was, uh, you know, good. So cool yeah they went with um christian peacemaker teams uh which is very cool and i remember hearing a a talk from the salters where so they have like a lot of sort of folk music in their um style uh and they borrow from lots of different cultures and i heard a a live interview with them where someone asked why that was and uh one of the band members had said when they were in iraq they um heard some people singing in really interesting ways and they wanted to learn how to do that from those people so that they could sing in the way that the oppressed people sing in that region in the United States. And so, you know, there is a real, like, it's not all just goofy. I mean, I was very goofy, (laughs) but that is not, (laughs) not all the Salter's fault. Uh, So I want to make that distinction clear. They were definitely doing some cool stuff. Also their bus ran in vegetable oil. And I thought that was uh, some real authentic living, you know? Yeah. Extremely important. I thought that was the coolest thing. I mean, I still do. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it is cool. Well, you can't really talk about any of this stuff without talking about one guy in particular. Um, I'm sure you know who I'm going to say, Matt, and that is Shane Claiborne, who did literally write the book called Jesus for President. Um, there it is. Which is the the book tour that he went on also uh, during the Obama um, election. So, like, uh, that was all in the air. And Shane Claiborne's still around. And he does some some cool stuff, uh, but has a really particular sort of vision of what it means to be a Christian of the world. Maybe it's worth talking about him a little bit, because he's also a great bridge into thinking through the the changes in the Biden election. Yeah, totally. I think, uh, so you mentioned Jesus for President, which is, uh, I think, the book that Shane Claiborne's most well known for. Um, I remember really liking it when I read it the first time, and I made my mom read it, and it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the first book that I ever read from him was called Irresistible Revolution. Yeah, Irresistible Revolution. Um, I read it in college, I think, for a class. And it was really like, I mean, um, you know, I had like been to Cornerstone. I'd been thinking about Christian anarchism through the Psalters. And then I read Irresistible Revolution. And I was like, oh, nice. This is like the same stuff in a book. How nice. <laughs> um <laughs> But I think uh, a lot of my early attitudes towards voting actually probably come from that book, uh, for better or for worse. Um, so, Dean, how about I read a little bit of this book to you on this podcast in front of God and everybody so we can get a feel <laughs> for what it's like? Please do. Okay. This is from Shane Claiborne's Irresistible Revolution. Uh, he says this. In 2004, as the presidential election rolled around, many of us studied the scriptures and considered what it meant to claim Jesus as Lord or as president. When people asked who I was voting for, I would say, my president has already ascended to the throne and has already delivered his State of the Union address. I don't believe that God needs a commander in chief or a millionaire in Washington, and I have little faith that either of the likely options will incarnate the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Fruit of the Spirit. 
I will declare my allegiance from the mountaintops, joining the chorus of the saints and the martyrs, and I will raise the banner of love above all flags. After all, we vote every day by how we live and what we buy and who we pledge allegiance to, so I resolved to write in my vote, as I did not find it on the national ballot, and I was determined not to let my vote be confined to a private booth, secret ballot, or taboo conversation. So <laughs> there you go. Um, Shane Claiborne, Jesus for president. Write Jesus in, write on your on your ballot. Um, <laughs> and then call Rio Giuliani that Jesus didn't win. Um, there's voter fraud for sure. That uh, is possible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that this is a really good, I mean, like Shane Claiborne has, I think a lot more nuanced things to say about voting since this thing particular, but I think this is a really good encapsulation of exactly like the, the type of operating logic of this mode of Christian counterculture, you know, um, Jesus is the most important thing, right? That's the whole reason you're living this like goofy life in the first place is this Jesus guy. That's the whole reason you're a Christian. So like you should like before all things, right, is Jesus. And even when it comes to voting, like who cares about the president? Uh, that's that's not how God's going to do things in the world. And I mean, to a certain extent, that's true. Um, but uh, but anyways, you get a, a good snapshot of like exactly the way people are thinking in this uh, particular movement. Yeah, it is a perfect window into that time, uh, a lost time, I think, too, because like you said, uh, Shane Claiborne has said more since then, um, even in Jesus for President itself, he gives a little bit more room for voting um, in that book. He acknowledges that, like, it's reasonable to vote against things that you think are less in line with God's kingdom than the other proposal, let's say. Um, he also in that book tells a story of like a community that was working with undocumented immigrants and they asked the people they worked with who to vote for and they voted on their behalf. Um, he's advocated doing that for people who've been disenfranchised through uh, felony charges and things like that, too. So, you know, there's there's something a bit more sophisticated going on here than just uh, writing in your vote for Jesus. But it's also, yeah. again, at the end of the day, though, it, it all sort of comes down to what's the most Christian thing to do in this situation. And the um, it, it stops short of sort of like endorsing one decision or uh, thinking through a real political alternative. The idea is that politics is there and it's going to do what it does. You as a Christian have to sort of figure out the way to navigate all that. Um, yeah, there's more to it, but I think that's uh, that's the key. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's some things to even like about that now. I mean, even though I, I think I, you know, I've moved past this in a lot of different ways, but I think that it's good to reject the idea of like political messianism or something, right? Mm -hmm. That like, if you just vote for the right guy, things will turn out okay. And I, I think that there's something really healthy about the idea that like, uh, that's not the way that God works in the world, at least not as we kind of consider the history of Christianity or even the Bible or whatever. That doesn't seem like the way it works out. So that's good. But some of it's a little bit like <laughs> overbearing. Yeah, overbearing or maybe in some ways even underbearing or kind of under theorized, I guess. Um, yeah, that could be, you know, like there's uh, there's not a tension in a book like this to something like, I don't know, class analysis for sure, but also just the, the the many material inequalities that pile up in the world. You know, it's not to say that there's no consciousness of that because there's a lot of it, I think, in in this movement. But the fact that it all gets sort of framed in in like biblical exegesis first and all the rest of it follows. uh sort of hamstrings your analysis at a certain point. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, um, we've got these folks um, from this like sort of countercultural and progressive Christianity. We got Shane Claiborne. We've talked about the Salters, people who aren't crazy about voting. But what if I told you 
that in 2020, that's who was telling you to vote. Whoa, I would say. Yeah, me too. I would also say that. I mean, Shade Claiborne has, um, like, like we've like we said already, right? Some more nuanced things to say about voting. But the Salters of all people did get on Facebook um, right before the election and kind of told everyone just where they stand with this whole situation and what they think about voting in this election. And what they said is pretty interesting. Dean, do you want to give us the scoop on the yeah. uh, the Salters voting take? Yeah, so I found this on Facebook scrolling through and it kind of floored me, actually. Like, I was genuinely surprised to see it. So, like I said earlier, the Salters are the ones who were maybe like the closest to a, a more, I mean, they were borrowing more from more radical anarchist traditions outside of um, just biblical exegesis or something. Uh, and so they were the people that I thought were encouraging me to think that civilization was going to collapse on itself, for example. So the key was to learn how to like forage for berries and be a good Christian in the in the rotting husk of Western civilization. So all that to say, not the kind of people you would think would tell you to vote. Uh, but here they are in 2020. This is a, a Facebook post that someone in the Salters made. I don't know. The, the pronoun they use is I. I don't know who the I is. But anyway, whoever has control of this account said it. Um, so this person says, uh, I'll just I'll I'll skip around a bit, but they say it's a, a big week coming up. Regardless of what happens, we know that at least 80 million uh, and more, if you count non-voters, think that giving a fragile aspiring dictator four more years at the helm of the most powerful position on Earth is a good idea. That's an army too large to intellectually bully into submission, as liberals seem to have been trying to do these last few decades. Uh, they go on to criticize populism. They also criticize fascism and a kind of rise of the right. They say, then, democracy is worth doing your part to preserve. While we may pursue our radical ideals for the sake of the marginalized and oppressed, it is ironically those very people who most need the tiny, compromising, little pragmatic actions done to maintain basic stability. Instability hurts them first. So do your Bonhoeffer duty and vote the lesser of two evils, then spend the rest of your day pursuing those vital ideals that will bring truer freedom and healthier community for all. Uh, they go on to say a lot more stuff um, and then add, uh, I'm a Christian, so obviously I'm no liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, and I don't ultimately believe in compromise or balance. I believe in the way of Christ and his way is found in relationship and understanding, uh, but then goes on to um, encourage people to uh, nevertheless um, vote and says, over the next couple months, I hope to make a few posts explaining the hurts and struggles and motivations of those 80 million people who voted for Trump to my liberal friends. So there's still some some like, good Christian reconciliation here, I guess. But says, uh, I will also take the time to explain the motivations of those liberals to my conservative friends. Um, so anyway, I'm leaving some parts of the post out, but uh, you can kind of get the tension at work here, right? It's like, um, I think it's great that the, this person in the Salters has found some way of coming up with a, a greater nuance and, and even understanding voting as a compromise is, is good. Uh, it is a compromise for sure. Um, but also trying to balance that with this, uh, this Christian impulse to still be outside the fray in an important way. I mean, it's just at the end of the day, there's lots to maybe pick apart here, but at the end of the day, it's it's absolutely bonkers to me that the Salters at all would say that you should compromise. And I think that is quite a, a big change. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, if I was if I was 18 right now and they said that at a concert, I'd be like, whoa, yeah. these guys are sellouts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh <laughs> but now now that i'm not 18 um looking <laughs> in that hypothetical situation i would be the immature one not them i think mm -hmm. um it would be my problem um 
but it's really interesting. Interesting that they how they've like worked that out exactly. That um, I mean, you know, the Salters have, you know, you look at their website. Like there've been there's there's no updates since like I don't know 2010 or something. So to come to to come back and say something about the election to to kind of like uh, reassert the Salters brand. I think it was a really interesting move. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> pretty, pretty fun and interesting. And I think shocking in some cool ways. Yeah. And to be fair to the Salters, you know, we obviously never knew them personally and we're projecting all kinds of stuff onto them, of course. So maybe they've totally. always been more complicated and we just didn't know. Um, probably. But, <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. For sure. Probably. Um, but I think it's like, it is still a wild thing to, like you said, Matt, you know, to project yourself back into the mind of like an 18 year old uh, Christian radical like that. And I too would have seen this as like a sellout post. Um, and I think that's like a weird thing to uh, reflect on. It does seem to mark some kind of shift. Maybe it's, maybe this is just really confession or we're like, uh, tracking our own, uh, growth into adulthood or something. But like, it feels like I couldn't imagine this being a Facebook status, um, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, just to get everything out on the table before we kind of take a, a larger turn to talk about it, let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Shane Claiborne and his, his nuanced voting approach in 2020. Right, uh, right before the election, um, he wrote uh, an article for Religion News, which is cool. Um, it was fine. He's just doing his, his Shane Claiborne thing. And uh, I don't know, a lot of interesting things to find in it. But he does say some stuff about voting. He kind of tells that story that we just talked about in um, The Irresistible Revolution about voting for Jesus and stuff. But now he's got a little bit of a new take. He says this. Let me be clear. I will be voting on November 3rd, but I will not be looking for a political savior. I'll be looking to do damage control. I'll be trying to harness the principalities and powers of darkness that are hurting so many children of God. I'll be voting for the politician who I believe will do the least amount of damage to the world and alleviate the most suffering for most people. Though that may sound cynical, I think that's an appropriate theological posture to have. I agree. I think that is an appropriate theological posture to have. <laughs> but uh, here we go. We have this person who went from voting for Jesus for president. Uh, he wrote it on his ballot, and and that's what he did, to this person saying that he's going to vote and do um, do damage reduction, damage control. Uh, it's a really fascinating pivot. Um, you know, that again, like these people have grown just like we have, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or they've always been this nuanced, and, and we just don't know it. Um, but it's interesting to say the least uh, that uh, you see these the, the Christian counterculture kind of make space for voting in their political practice, you know, like um, <laughs> dumpster diving, having your uh, your van run on um, <laughs> on vegetable oil, living in an intentional community, doing this like new monasticism thing, all this stuff. It's all in the background here. But now there's space for voting, too, um, which is I don't know. It, it's interesting how that um how that's shifted in, into the into the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of take stock of what is and isn't happening here, too. And maybe we don't know. Maybe they don't know either. But um, I guess the question for me is, like, how does all this uh, transpose itself into the Biden era? Um, because you can see this preservation of the Christian distance from electoral politics in the U.S., which, like you said, Matt, I think is good, right? Like, the last thing you want is Christians who are like, uh, I'm a Christian and therefore I am also extremely excited about Joe Biden. <laughs> like there's enough of <laughs> that bad, going around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we do not need that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really, uh, kind of happy to see that actually that sort of radicalizing moment, that radicalizing distance is still present in the, in this way. Um, that's great. Uh, I guess my, my sort of open question is, 
is that a sort of liberalizing of a sort of radical demand or is it maybe opening on to a more nuanced politics and maybe only time can tell but uh those are also my own open questions i think they're good questions to have for sure um i don't know i um i'm not gonna try to answer them <laughs> i think they're just yeah. good open questions to have <laughs> i know that that's uh that's an anti-podcast uh, ethos to do right there uh <laughs> to not answer the questions but i think it's better to sit with those things uh i don't really know the answers to them i think that shane claiborne has um a lot more nuance than i would have previously given him credit for um but uh yeah i guess we'll have to see what kind of comes of of this movement in in the like christian counterculture world i don't know mm -hmm. it's just like first of all i want to say too that it's like really heartening to see people like shane claiborne and like uh like johnson wilson hargrove he was like a new monasticism kind of person too mm -hmm. and he's like out there still still like writing about politics and christianity and i think that we probably have some significant differences with them but i i think it's really good that they are still kind of like doing what they're doing and making their voices heard because for me this is such an important stepping stone out of evangelicalism yeah, yeah. Uh, towards something way different and uh i hope that it still serves that purpose for a lot of people and uh yeah i just i just want i want it to work out for everyone else too to yeah to jump ship and to do something better with their politics in their life yeah and we should say probably also to be clear like there's a lot of uh uh pushback and criticism from especially lgbt folks of shane claiborne and others wanting them to be yep. more vocally affirming and obviously that's true so it's not to say that <laughs> not to say that they should keep doing what they're doing because it's exactly right or the the perfect bridge or stepping stone or anything but like undeniably it's true that they they had a sort of formative role and hopefully they still have at least in this respect a more formative role of getting people out of like uh an addiction to u.s nationalism or something yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like I said, significant differences with them yeah. in their politics in a lot of different ways. But it is like a uh, it's a productive encounter for evangelicals, I think, to say the very least. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, to to get you off of that Christian nationalism kick to think to make you think about like um, pacifism and violence in ways that you probably wouldn't have uh, at any other time. So it's good for those reasons, if nothing else. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, so there's a bit of a shift, maybe you could say, uh, between what it means to be a sort of mainstream and even uh, outside of the mainstream Christian, progressive Christian, thinking about electoral politics uh, after Trump, which is a big deal. Um, man, I'd love to see a lot of people write about that, but who could? I'm not sure. Uh, but I think the big question now is what's the Christian left supposed to do and what are Christians on the left supposed to do moving into a Biden presidency? Um, the one good thing that, well, not the one good thing, the, the, a very good thing that comes out of Shane Claiborne and, and the Salters and all these other folks approach is that Christian distance. Uh, but the big question is from where does one critique or what do you want instead and, and where should you go? And I think that's a question that that tradition has always not been able to answer for me in particular, um, yeah. which is why I moved into, into a Marxist direction. So maybe we could spend the, the back half of the episode talking a bit about that. Um, you know, what does it mean for Christians to hold Biden accountable now? Um, and uh, what would it mean to sort of rethink Christianity's relationship to electoral politics uh, with a Biden victory? Yeah, I think that's good. Well, be before we even get that far, maybe we can just talk about the, the difference, though, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, we've been talking so much about Shane Claiborne and like... Uh, and the whole like 
Christian counterculture, but maybe we can talk about like the pivot away from that even before we get this far. Yeah, I think it's it's good to to talk more about that difference or that distance because the question is what's insufficient in the sort of Christian anarchist approach. We talked about this a little while ago when we did an episode on Juan Segundo, who I think still has like the coolest perspective on how Christians should relate to politics. But I think for me, the the real key difference is I no longer think that Christianity is like a self-enclosed and sort of totalizing or simple identity from which you can just derive all your political opinions. Um, you do need help from other kinds of ways of thinking. And uh, for me, that's Marxism, right? So like Christianity can tell you to be suspicious of the state and you should be. Uh, it can tell you to uh, care about the poor and you should do that. You know, all that stuff is true. But the big question is like, well, what is the state actually doing and how does it do that? Or like, why are poor people poor and how can you make them not poor? And that's where, you know, the Bible can give you some great moral direction and get you in the struggle, but it can't actually tell you uh, what's going on under global capitalism. I think that's a huge issue if we want to talk about electoral politics or any other kind of politics. Yeah, man, I'm glad that you brought Juan Segundo up. I was thinking about that just at the same time you were um <laughs> uh I, I think that's the difference that really makes the difference in this discussion too right like um like i've said this entire time i think that shane claiborne is good for a lot of reasons and has um it can be a very productive encounter but i think that Juan Segundo, like what he gives us in um in some of, in some of the work that we talked about from him on the podcast is just like um is a, a recognition that politics will necessarily precede your religious understanding just because of the way politics works in whatever society that you live in. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, just like you were saying, Dean, like uh, I think that Christian anarchism and evangelicalism in general um, has a tendency to think of itself as something that is uh, self-contained that you can just like, if you want to know what the, the, what's what the biblical approach to anything is, you just have to do like the right amount of exegesis to figure it out. Right. But um, Juan Segundo and other like liberation theologists, theologians wants to go down other liberation theologians and you know marxists too they'll tell you that like um you know religion might be fine but like at the same time it's informed by a material base that kind of feeds into like what it does and how it acts so like figuring out exactly um you know the way that works is really important for christians to do politics because you can't just say like well the the christian approach is x y or z because you need to think about the economic base that's kind of moving you to say those things at the same time so like um, I, I guess what's really helpful to me is to think about the ways that our expressions of our faith are like hermeneutic projects, you know, like you have to, um, you have to think about the ways that you're reading these different, <laughs> these different theological texts and, and engaging with these political ideas. If you're an evangelical and you think that the Bible is the end all and be all things and you're interpreting things just, you know as a biblical scholar or whatever, I think you're going to end up coming up short if you don't factor into the factor in like the ways that um, white supremacy and capitalism and um, imperialism all kind of play into the way that we read the Bible from the very beginning, or we understand our politics from the very beginning. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think unless we understand the ways that politics undergird um, the way we understand our religion, we're going to always kind of come up short. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially with respect to uh, the Biden victory, I think that's really important because, you know, I, I don't mean to undersell it. Like there is something rhetorically very persuasive and powerful about saying I don't identify with Joe Biden or Donald Trump because neither of these people are going to bring about, you know, the Beatitudes in the world or something like that. Yeah. That's true. And and I, I agree. Like I feel the same way in one sense. Um, 
But uh, if that's where the critique stops, I think it sort of um, it halts you from really identifying how to oppose Joe Biden, because you can't just say, and that's why we should all go to church more, read the Bible better or uh, live in these, (laughs) you know, intentional communities, which are kind of islands of holiness in like a sea of injustice. Like, you know, that's not going to change the fundamental structures of the system. And I think that's the key. If we really want to talk about building a world where the Beatitudes can be realized, you know, you want to build it in such a way that um, you're not just uh, like you can actively do things that are more than, um, I don't know, uh, crying out from the rooftops or something like that. And uh, to speak to another exegetical tradition, (laughs) namely Marxism or communism, uh, I think it's really helpful, actually, to go back to uh, what Marxists think about bourgeois elections. And we've talked about it a bit already this year on the show. We have even talked about what I'm about to bring up. But um, what I've been thinking about a lot in light of the Biden election is something that Lenin said on uh, about the Roosevelt election in 1912. So um, here it is. If you're asking me what Christians should do to sort of understand their distance from the Biden election, uh, my advice is get a little bit of help from this advice from Lenin. <laughs> so Lenin says, uh, the world's significance of the U.S. elections lies not so much in the great increase in the number of socialist votes uh, at that time as in the far-reaching crisis of the bourgeois parties in the amazing force with which their decay has been revealed. Lastly, the significance of the election lies in the unusually clear and striking revelation of bourgeois reformism as a means of combating socialism. We shall save capitalism by reforms, says that party, speaking of Roosevelt's Republican Party at that time. We shall establish state control over factories to eliminate poverty and enable everybody to earn a decent wage. We shall establish social and industrial justice. We revere revere all reforms. The only reform we don't want is the expropriation of the capitalists. Uh, Lenin goes on to say, obviously, so long as these modern slave owners are there, all reforms will be nothing but a deception. Roosevelt has been deliberately hired by the astute multimillionaires to preach this deception. The state control they promised will become, if the capitalists keep their capital, a means of combating and crushing strikes. But the American proletarian has already awakened and has already taken up their post. They greet Roosevelt's success with cheerful irony, as if to say, you lured four million people with your promise of reform, dear imposter Roosevelt, very well. Tomorrow, those four million will see that your promises were a fraud and don't forget that they are following you only because that it is impossible to go on living in the old way. Um, I just feel like this whole passage is so prescient with respect to the Joe Biden campaign, like top to bottom. You know, uh, Biden, Biden liberalism uh, was definitely uh, the the bludgeon used against socialism in this election, right against Bernie Sanders and others. Um, it's also, I think, true that the the world significance of this election isn't in the increase in the number of socialists in the U.S., which is great and good, but more the, the revelation of a crisis in both the Democratic and Republican parties, right? Lenin is calling attention to that, too. Um, and lastly, that key point of saying uh, the promise of reform is used as a bludgeon against the demand for, for justice via socialism by changing the economic structure of a society, and uh, we shouldn't mistake that promise as a ringing endorsement because a lot of people did vote for Biden only because they think it's impossible to go on living under Trump. So anyway, mm-hmm. this is all getting a bit long winded. But all that to say, I really think that if Christians are going to pivot to being critical of Biden, certainly we can say it's because a Biden government won't enact the Beatitudes. But also 
um, we can identify some real political and economic reasons why that is. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Um, it's a helpful analysis that I think only benefits Christians on the left. <laughs> Just to read Lenin. <laughs> I'm biased. Um, this is part of my hermeneutic project of Christianity, for sure, to, <laughs> to understand uh, Christian politics through this particular lens. That's all true. But it is extremely helpful. Um, you know, I mean, just just like you said, like um, it, the intentional community is like fine for what it is, but it it is just a an island of holiness in a sea of of sin or whatever. But at least this like um, gives you a sense of like what political mobilization might do for you. Um, otherwise, you know, um, if you can, uh, if you if you're going to be critical of Biden, then join the other people who are also critical of Biden and and do something different. The one thing that does stick out with me, this is an aside, I guess, but the one thing that does stick out uh, at me from this uh, from this London quote is um, uh, Roosevelt's reforms uh, in the, in this sense are all um, all uh, framed as fraud, like that he's like right. tricks people. And it's funny because like uh, for Biden, it's like not really the case. Like there is like the the promise of reforms, but like we already all know that they're kind of <laughs> fake. Um, you know, like. Um, all, all of these like Democrats coming out of the woodwork to like decry socialism and like how that like cost them the election and like socialist reforms like Medicare for all are, are not even on the table for them or all of like the all of the dumb shit Democrats that came out today that were like, huh, the fund the police. I don't think so. You know, yeah. all these people uh, we knew from the beginning that these uh, these promises were going to be uh, fraudulent. It's it just like, you know, part of the uh, the weird simulacrum of politics, I guess, that we're living in or something. But um it's good. Uh, I think uh, Lenin is a good way forward for uh, for politics uh, post Biden. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here, folks. Uh, Lenin is the way forward post Biden. Um, yeah, Hard to argue you know, with. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the question for me too. Is uh, moving from this position that I used to hold, where I thought to be a Christian is to be out of step with the world. It's important to identify the continuities and discontinuities, right? Like. The continuities are that uh, you shouldn't feel at home in a world that is based on horrible injustice and inequality and exploitation and built on all of that. It's sustained by it, etc. Um, but the the real important piece of that is you need to find some way of understanding the complexities of it so you can intervene. So, like, you know, it's good that you shouldn't you shouldn't endorse Joe Biden for sure. Uh, good for Shane Claiborne, and you should still vote for him, right? In the same same breath. Uh, good for Shane Claiborne. But uh, after that, how are you going to hold them accountable? Because preaching isn't going to going to do it. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The, I guess it's the, it's the same chorus that we always have on the show, which is that Christians should be turning to Marx to help us figure out what the heck is going on in this bizarre system that we're all compelled to live in. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Um, I mean, uh, the the rhetoric is good. I think the rhetoric of Shane Claiborne is good. I, I'm here for it for sure. Um but like the political analysis isn't necessarily there. Um, you know, no offense, no offense to Mr. Claiborne, uh, who, I mean, he's not a primarily like a political thinker. Um, but I think that Christians really need like help to do something else, right. <laughs> to get beyond just like theologizing or, um, just preaching or whatever, you know, what, what else do you do? Um, what organizations do you get involved in? Like, what's the pathway, you, you know, it, if um, I think that Shane Claiborne's right, you know, like um, the Beatitudes, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they're not going to be brought about through uh, bourgeois politicians like Joe Biden. That's true. 
but then like figuring out like what where will they be found right like where what will like what'll do it or like what's the way to build some of the like a society that reflects some of those values and like i i think that you need a roadmap to to engage in that struggle and i don't know i don't know what better roadmap there is than than marxism but um that's just that's just my own skewed marxist take on this whole situation (laughs) yeah i mean that makes me think too of uh you know something that people ask us sometimes every once in a while is like why aren't you anarchists or why are you marxists or whatever and i think in a weird way it's a sort of scaled up version of the argument that the salters person makes about um voting that i understand that it's a compromise in a lot of ways you know marxism is not uh christianity it's not reducible to christianity and vice versa um But I guess the way I feel about it is if you can bring yourself to compromise to vote for Joe Biden, which is a very hard compromise to make, uh, then surely you can also bring yourself to compromise to, like, support, I don't know, the self-determination of people in Cuba. (laughs) Like, you know, the the struggles of, I don't know, like teachers going on strike on a wildcat strike um, or trying to hope that, I don't know, um, somebody out there, some some union is like really organizing working class people in such a way that could bring about actual democratic control of, of workplaces, right? That uh, these might be compromises in some sense insofar as they're not um, one-to-one directed like pieces of advice given to you by reading the gospels. Uh, but if you're willing to like throw a vote in an extremely bad election, then uh, hopefully you'd also be willing to, I don't know, think in a nuanced way about these other world historical and political situations. Yeah, I think so. So uh, get out there and do those things. That's all there is to it, really. (laughs) That is all there is to it. Uh, What we need is a a Marxist Shane Claiborne. We need a we need a Jesus for chairman book or a a, a Jesus for secretary of the Central Committee. Oh, I guess we do. I guess we need that book. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. And who knows, maybe we'll make enough money that we have time to sit down and write Jesus for Secretary of the, the New Common Turn. Um, well, you know, we, we need the money to think of a better title. Don't worry, it'll come to us. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. You can uh, do all kinds of other stuff. You can support the Salters, for example, by buying their music at Bandcamp. And it's great. Um, It's really, it's still, it holds up. Uh, It's a wild thing to listen to and you should go do it. Um, It really does. Yeah. Or even The the Illogical Spoon, which which has Salters members in it. So buy that too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The the outro that we have on this podcast is uh, a product of, of all that. So support them. Um, our intro is by Amoria Armstrong, and we'll see you all next week. I don't want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation, never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind. Hey.
All night, it's still early.